You are listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. I'm Mary Jane Laurie and in this episode we are joined by some of the team at Glenrinnis Estate at the foot of Ben Rinnis in Moray. Estate manager Ali Lang tells us about the estate as a whole and we are also joined by headkeeper Gordon Aitchison, distillery manager Martin Peroni, trainee farm worker Alex Shearer and head gardener Damon Powell. They all share their stories of working on Glenrinnis Estate and how their skills and enthusiasm come together to help run a successful community-focused Scottish estate. Hi Ali, can you tell us about your background in farming? Yeah, I always was very keen to be a farmer as we, when I was a young person and coming from a family farm, decided to go to college and we studied a high national diploma in agriculture in Aberdeen, followed it on by a, a degree, a fit farm business management degree to do more management side of things, which yeah, it was more into the management side of things I liked at the time. After leaving college, I became a shepherd down in Fife for about three to four years. The routine tasks of feeding 5,000, 6,000 store lambs a year kind of in all weathers was great, but I thought, no, I could make a change. And I joined SEC Consulting 25 years ago, where I worked in the open office, started my career in Oban, moving up to Elgin. And lastly, when I finished with SEC Consulting, I was one of the regional managers and responsible for the north of Scotland. How did you come to work at Glenrinnis Estate then? Well, as part of my job with uh, SEC, I started to do a lot more work with the states. And one of the work jobs was I came here to do a whole review of Glenrinnis Farms at the time. So I did a whole farm review and suggested some suggestions how that would maybe benefit the farm and the state. Mm-hmm. So after that, the owner asked me whether I would like to implement my plan, which I did do through SEC. And then about four years late uh, ago, he came to me and said, look, I want a full-time manager. I think it's getting a big enough business. We need a full-time manager. Do you know of anyone that might be interested? And, well, I had a great love for the place and I decided, yep, now's the right time in my career to change and give me a new challenge. It must have been nice having that involvement from an outside perspective, looking at it as a consultant and then getting the opportunity to come and work at the estate. I think that was one of the benefits. I knew a lot of it, but being a consultant and outside, you couldn't actually get to make sure your plans were implemented the way you wanted them to be or fully. So being on on site, you can get a hands-on position to help change things and make things go the way that you feel are going or the way they shouldn't be going. So can you describe the state for us now? What's it like now, now that you're working there? What we've got is we've got uh, about 4,500 acres of in-hand farmland, which we, we have a mixture of about 160 cyclic cows, 1,600 mm-hmm. breeding yows and 400 breeding red deer. The main cattle enterprise is consisting of mainly shorthorn Aberdeen Angus cross cows producing organic store cattle and organic fat cattle. Our sheep enterprise is mules and blackface with all our offspring which not kept for breeding is sold organically fat. And then recently, about three, four years ago, we have an issue with red deer. We trapped some red deer, we bred them and kept them in captivity. And now we're farming 400 breeding hinds with all the progeny sold live and killed in a slaughterhouse down in Yorkshire and sold through a Waitrose contract. In addition, we have on the state, we have a major sporting part of the state, which involves shooting commercially pheasants, partridge and ducks. We have a lot of stocking from American clients for red and roe deer. And we also have Benrinus Hill where we are trying to manage environmentally to bring back grouse back onto the estate. One of the things we decided about two, three years ago was because we had a great water supply on the state and location, Mr. Locke's stepson, Alex, just wanted to have a new distillery. Mm-hmm. 
So we built a new distillery which produces organic gin and organic vodka and offshoots to that. That's our main diversification, but like any other big estate, we have a, a huge policy which is managed to Mr. Locke's wife's, Mrs. Locke's way. We manage it organically and we we manage it organically. It's all done for have people come round and come to have a look at it. So you mentioned there the, the sporting interests of the state, which is obviously an, an important aspect of the business. Tell us a bit more about them. Yeah, one of the reasons I would say that Mr. Locke bought the state way back in 1990 was his love for the area, but also his keen passion for sporting. He loves shooting and sporting activities. So we have developed our shoot here at Glenrinnis Farms quite a lot over the last 10, 15 years, where we had small, mediocre shooting of pheasants, partridge and duck. And through time, we've managed to increase that quite to a high, yeah, sought after estate that people would love to come shooting pheasants and partridge because we provide great hospitality and some very challenging birds for them. This can only be done with the, the workforce that we've got. And we were fortunate enough over with about 10, 12 years ago, we, we took on a new keeper who's now our head keeper, Gordon Aitchison. Hi, Gordon. Your role Hi. in the estate is head keeper. How long have you worked at Glen Rinnis? Uh, about 12 years. What was your role before that? Where, where else have you worked? I was down in uh, Dumfries and Galloway uh, by Castle Douglas uh, on a commercial shoot. And this is a more of a family orientated uh, shoot, a little okay. bit less pressure or a little bit less um, intense. So what attracted you to a career in gamekeeping to start with? I actually uh, served my time as a toolmaker uh, in the shipyards in Newcastle. But my auntie had a, a cottage in the countryside. That's where my interests lied with uh, bird watching and just generally being out- outdoors. I used to live for the six weeks holiday up in, uh, up in Northumberland in the countryside. Well, it sounds lovely just getting away from sort of the industrial exactly, upbringing yeah. that you had. Yeah, that yeah. sounds lovely. For those listeners who are maybe not familiar with the role of gamekeeper, what does your job involve? It changes uh, over the year massively from one uh, month to the next, but uh, the majority or the most important bit is uh, when the birds arrive, they all go into big enclosures and and looking after them and feeding them uh, twice a day from about five o'clock in the morning uh, and then uh, sitting over the pens uh, sometimes till sort of two o'clock in the morning to make sure that uh, the foxes and things aren't coming in to eat them. So, and then after that, it's a, a case of feeding them to where you want them to be fed. And then the shooting starts, but it's a, it's a long time. The birds arrive in July, um, the start of July. So it's a long time till the end of uh, October until you start shooting. And there's a lot of work involved before the, the shooting starts. And when you're talking about birds, how how many birds are you putting down, and and is it just pheasants that you that you put uh, down? It's pheasants, partridges, and and ducks. Um, okay. And uh, you, you sort of work on uh, what you want to hope to shoot at the end of the year, uh, and then you normally only shoot about a third of what you put down. So okay. that's how you work out your numbers. If you want to shoot a, a, a hundred birds in the year. Uh, then you would put about 300 down. Uh, so it works up, just scales up from there, really. So, yeah, we'll put a few down. Yeah. And how, how many shoots are you running throughout the winter then? 20 this year. And it, it, each estate can do, depends how many drives. You need to rest them. You can't just keep doing them. Uh, so the, the, the birds will probably only be disturbed once every two weeks, once every three weeks. Um mm-hmm. So we'll have about 15 or 20 drives at the start of the year. And then then you start concentrating them as the year goes on, bring them closer in uh, to one drive rather than three. 
so yeah, it's it's quite a long uh, it's quite a long process. And when does the shooting year start for you guys? When when do you hope to have your first shoot? Again, it depends on when you get them. They've got to be at least twenty weeks old, but we quite like them a bit all in that to get a bit of strength about them and coloured up and fully mature. Uh, so that again, that revolves around when when you start, and we start um, right at the end of October. Um, so the birds arrive at about six, eight weeks old at the end of uh, June, uh, start of July. So we're recording this episode in early November. So you just started your shooting season now then. So you're gearing up for a, a busy winter ahead. Uh, we'll have, uh, we've had two or three days there now. You know long before your first day uh, how your season's going to go. Um, if you've had trouble before that, uh, you, you know before the the first day that you it's either going to be good or you're going to either, either have a good season or not so good one uh, yeah. long before the first shot's fired. And is that to do with the weather? We've had a lot of storms recently. Does that impact the, the quality of the shoot? There's so many things, variables um, between the weather, disease and predators. If the, if the birds are disturbed uh, when you first get them, uh, you, can, you can lose an awful lot of birds. Uh, not only being killed, but being chased away from the feed. So uh, it, it, it's incredible that we'll only shoot like a third of the birds that were put down. Um, yeah. But that's the reality of it. And and things are obviously enjoying uh, pheasant, pheasant dinners, uh, most nights, foxes and all the other predators are quite like the taste of a pheasant. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like quite a big ex- expense for the estate, really, to, to get to the point of having a, a successful shoot. What sort of customers come for, for the shoots on the estate? We're, we're quite lucky. Uh, most of the days are, are, are private. Um, okay. It's just themselves. And there is days sold. Uh, all sorts. We'll have small days. I, I, it's a bit like going out to a, a restaurant or going out to eat. You can go for a, a fast food, you know, a cheap sort of thing, uh, <laughs> and we do rough days roundabout. Uh, or you can you can have a save up and and go to the Ritz and have a <laughs> have a big day. So it, it varies on on who who's coming uh, and what kind of days we'll have. That must be quite nice for you as well, having a variety of different people to welcome onto the estate and and create those different experiences. Everybody's of the same uh, frame of mind, and it is not everybody's spot on. It's it's good. It's good. Everybody's out for a day out and enjoyment, so you're halfway there, really. So you're talking there about different types of shoots, like maybe the more rough shoots, and then some that are maybe more the sort of five star experience. Can you kind of describe what the landscape is like for us? For those of us that don't know where the estate is, how does it look? How what are your shoots like? Are you over moorland, or is it more woodland and and sort of grazing? Uh, there's quite a there's a steep hill that sort of dominates the hall, and it's uh it's just short of three thousand uh, feet, um and that's obviously all moorland and rock, and then it, mm-hmm. it it comes down, but we're quite lucky because it's a big open glen, it's not tight, it's it'll be about a mile across, uh which then narrows down, so it's a big open and then farmland. With the with the burn running down through the middle of it, and a, and a road going down. So there's farmland on the bottom, and then both sides. Um, there's woodland on one, and then uh, a grouse moor, which stretches the the full length of the glen. There's stalking as well. Um, okay. Uh, uh, for raw deer and, and and red deer, which we're just trying to control the numbers there. It's getting it, it, everybody's got their own. Um, obviously coming in to eat the trees so that's my priority just to try and get the trees um, grown because it mm-hmm. only takes one night for uh, 50 or 60 red deer to come in and, and you've lost all your trees even 10 year old trees that can uh, destroy overnight so it, it, it's um, it, it's quite heartbreaking sometimes after you, you, you're trying to get woodland uh, established so yeah, yeah, like I say, it's quite a varied, um, quite a varied job. 
And are you doing the deer control yourself as well, or do you sell them as deer stocking days? Uh, there's there's four of us. There's there's two hill keepers and two pheasant keepers. Um, okay. And we're all it's it's mainly the the hill keepers that are are doing the stalking, uh, but we obviously all help out and we all just do our own bit, um, yeah. just to just to try and uh, keep the numbers in balance, really. So thinking of the estate as a as a whole, then how does the game aspect of the estate fit in with the farming side of the business? You know, how do you manage the habitats of the estate to benefit game, but also to benefit wildlife? You mentioned there that the woodland management—that's obviously one aspect of it, isn't it? It's quite obviously every estate's different, uh, and we are really fortunate. And the main reason the estate is here is for the shooting, so everybody we all work together everybody's obviously got their own the 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 shepherds want the sheep in a field and the and the 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 cows need to go and the barley needs to be so we're all kind of working together um fortunately alistair's there to steer the ship because everybody's got their own uh individual preferences of what they want to happen uh, yeah. but we are lucky in, in as much as the estate's here for the shooting and yeah. and things tend to revolve around that. And how important do you think is the shoot for maintaining the environment and and the landscape that you've got at Glenrinnis? Yeah, massive, massive. Um, all the game crops, all the barley's left uh, for the birds, and obviously everything else uh, benefits along with it. Right from the butterflies in the summer, all the game crops are flowering. Um, there's a ver- variety of, of, of plants uh, put in. It's obviously for the pheasants, um, but it's amazing what benefits. And then all the finches come in the winter because um, obviously all the the barley is left. So they're eating the seeds, which, which doesn't happen anywhere else. It's normally ploughed in. So no, it's good. It's, it, it's certainly... And the hedges that's been put in, there's a lot more variety of birds nesting now than there was 10 years ago. Like we would never have seen a, a yellow hammer uh, on the place now that the hedges are up, they're nesting in the minutes. So yeah, no, the, the, you can actually see the difference over the years of what's happening. So yeah, no, it's, it, it's a good place to work. That's fantastic just to hear that even in a short space of time, like 10 years for planting hedges, how quickly an impact that can have. And, and you're mentioning there the, the game crop for the seed eating birds over winter. I think that's that's fantastic. And it's nice to know that these sort of practices go hand in hand with ma- managing a commercial shoot, because at the end of the day, you're you're running a business, but you're also providing an important habitat for wildlife. Uh, I think certainly that's for me to justify shooting if you like or not that i have to but uh that when you're out in the summer and you see um all the flowers grown in your game crops um and everything else that's benefiting from it no it's it's quite a nice feeling to know that you're kind of responsible for looking after the place um as well as you can It sounds like there's a lot going on on the estate then, Ali, and a lot of aspects of the estate for you to manage. How important is the diversity of all those enterprises that you've got going on the estate? I think the main thing is like any business, having a diverse range of enterprises helps in the overall financial benefit of the thing, but also being able to use our assets that are available on the ground. It's complex. Uh, there's various issues, but we all work well together and hopefully everything complements each other. You've mentioned Glen Rennes Distillery already. Other than income, what additional diversity does that bring to the business? It's a different ballgame than normal farming and estate enterprise. You know, we're dealing more with the general public who come to visit the estate and everything like that. But it's also given us an, an opening to show people from the public what also goes on in the estate. Some of the tours that we provide from the distillery, we provide going to see the red deer, seeing the farm cattle, telling them how we work it and why we do what we do. We also take them to the top of Enrinus, where we can show them the lovely scenery, but also explain how we're managing the hill environmentally and for what reasons we're doing it. Mm-hmm. We also can offer 
corporate entertainment like shooting, which brings in the whole aspects of the state. This has developed over the last few years within our new distillery manager, Martin Peroni. Hi, Martin. Hi. Your name is Martin Peroni. So first of all, great name for someone who works in the alcohol industry. I'm sure people say that to you all the time. But Yeah, yeah there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a beer out there with my name all over it. Um, but yeah. uh, it, it is actually spelt slightly differently. But, oh, uh, is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Glenrinnis Distillery then. It's quite new, isn't it? Yeah, it's relatively new. So the distillery was um, completed in 2019. Um, that's when we first started production, uh, which was a, a fantastic year to start an international business, as you might imagine. So I've been with the company since um, for two years now, coming up in two years. But there was a couple of years in production that, where I wasn't there. And yeah, so that's the, that's the, the broad timeline. I know you weren't involved from the start, but what is the process like from the idea of the distillery to opening the the doors and distilling the first bottle how does that all happen well sure it's actually it's quite interesting because i, I i'm in a slightly um uh, unique position in that uh, my involvement with the project was actually back started back in sort of 2015 2016. Uh, okay. my background is as a, a water um, consultant and engineer uh, so i was contacted back then by the uh, by alex the founder who was interested in having a look at the water supplies that were on the the estate um so i was actually originally involved in the project and finding the water supplies um which in our case is a a spring system here um so i was originally um, involved in finding those springs and developing the spring catchment and doing water quality analysis and and water monitoring uh, for, for quantity um, so I actually had a bit of involvement right back at the beginning of the, of the process. And then Glen Rinnis was my sort of customer, if you like, ongoing until, um, until I got the opportunity to become a distillery manager. So I was a little bit more involved in the early days than most people would be in my position. I mean, obviously the first, uh, the first thing they needed to do was secure that water supply. It's so crucial for, for any distillery and it's such an important resource to, to manage on any estate with, you know, with any customer, it's an important resource to manage. Um, but much more so when you're, when you're drawing quite large quantities to produce product, you know, so getting that right, uh, was an important first step and. Then I believe there was a lot of development of the actual recipe, you know, so even before okay. the, um, the distillery was built, um, the, the, the recipe was developed um, and that allowed them a kind of slightly unique opportunity to build a bespoke distillery based around the recipe that they had already developed. Um, so I believe in those early days, there was a lot of um, tasting <laughs> of, uh, of gin <laughs> oh, and vodka, you know. You missed, that that. Been, missed out on that then. Exactly. That must have been a hard job for the founders, you know, basically tasting, <laughs> tasting gins and picking their favourites. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, so they settled on on producing um, something a little bit different for, for Speyside. I mean, Speyside's obviously world famous for, for whiskey production. Um, yeah. So for the owners to, to, to focus on something that wasn't whiskey and to focus on the clear spirits was, was actually something quite differentiating. And to focus as well on producing an organic spirit, uh, which okay. uh, while it's becoming more commonplace, is still quite niche. You know, it's it's a difficult process to produce an organic product, uh, particularly for for things as complex as gin. Uh, so it's uh, it's definitely something that's quite unique. So you mentioned there that at the moment producing gin and vodka is is the ultimate aim to produce whiskey because that's often how new distilleries sort of bankroll the investment to get to the point of producing whiskey, which obviously takes a longer a longer time. Um, is that the ultimate aim for the distillery to be producing whiskey? No, and again, okay. that's one of the things that's that's quite that differentiates us because a, a lot of whiskey distilleries. I mean, you know, as, as you alluded to, if you start a whiskey distillery, you're going to be at least three years before you have any money coming in from selling product. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those uh, distilleries basically, you know, they want to use their equipment to do something to generate revenue and to generate cash flow. And as a result, they'll pick on something like gin or vodka and they'll, they'll, they'll play around with that as a sort of a temporary money spinner. Um, but they tend to produce products that are, um, you know, they, they, they reflect that desire. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not their long-term, long-term aim or their, their, their main focus, you know. Um, whereas Glen Venice Distillery focuses on the gin and vodka. It's what we want to make. And we want to make those okay. spirits as, as, as well as we possibly can. You know, the commitment's definitely to quality rather than just it being a money spinner for a few years that we're eventually going to abandon. Um, so yeah. there's no plans to make, um, to make a whiskey. The closest okay. we come to is that we have barrel aged some of our vodka, um, okay. so we can get some very interesting barrel flavours, uh, 
we have an existing line uh, that's uh, a muscat sweet wine barrel that we've aged our vodka into. Um, so that, that, that gives you some kind of barrel aging flavors, um, but it's very different from whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. So what produce from the state, if any, do you use then in, in the spirit making? You mentioned there, obviously, you're, you're selling an uh, organic product that's more tricky to, to source because gin can have quite a few ingredients. How, how many of those are grown on the estate and how many are outsourced? So it, it depends what products you're talking about. So for our gin, uh, that's probably the most obvious one. We forage from the estate for some, for some of the botanicals. So oh, okay. we contain things like wood sorrel, which is a very nice, it's also called sour grass. You've got a very nice citrusy note to that and a nice herbal citrus note to it. Um, so that's foraged entirely from the estate. And um, we have other botanicals like cowberry, uh, which grow mm-hmm. locally in abundance around the estate. Um, so those are those are foraged as well. Uh, we also have um, sort of a limited edition seasonal run of slow gin that we do every year. And right. so the, the slow berries where possible are foraged from the estate. But there's certain gin botanicals that are just not, they're not practical to, to, to forage or to, to source from Scotland. Uh, things like um, cassia bark and cardamom don't, don't grow so well in our climate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But also juniper, you know, you know, wild juniper does grow on the estate wild. Um, it's, it's in a much different position, juniper, in Scotland as it would be, for example, in, in Hungary. You know, you get a lot less of it growing here. It's a, it's a much more, um, it's sort of endangered bush, if you like. And the flavours are also very different. So where possible, we source from the UK and we source from good quality organic suppliers, regardless of where they come from. Uh, but for some of our botanicals, it just simply has to come from abroad. No, that makes sense. You can't get everything that you need on, on, on one estate, as nice as it would be to be able to do that. It's, exactly. it's uh, yeah. probably not yeah. as easy as that. So for anyone listening who would like to sample some of your um, gins and vodkas, what's the what's the trading name um, that they need to look for on the bottom? So the, the brand name is Eighth Lands. Um, okay. So that, that gets its name from the top of Ben Rennes Hill, which is a fairly imposing mountain just behind the distillery. Um, it's one of the highest points in the area. So you can see eight historical counties of Scotland from the top of that hill. On a, oh, wow. on a nice clear sunny day, uh, which we which we do get once every few years. <laughs> um, so that's where the, the name Eight Lands comes from. It comes from those from those eight counties. Um, so you'll be able to 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 get the the gin and vodka. We have our seasonal slow gin available now, uh, mm-hmm. which probably will be available certainly up until Christmas, maybe a little bit into January. But thereafter, we tend to sell out. And we have a new batch of barrel aged vodka, which is coming soon. So that that should hopefully be available um, for the start of for the start of next year at the latest. And we also have other sort of experimental processes going on. We do have some new product development, which is which is ongoing. So there may be more products under the Eightland brand next year, but those are still under wraps. <laughs> and where can people buy buy the the, the gin and vodka? Is it, do you sell to farm shops or just directly from yourselves? So we sell to a number of uh, a number of outlets locally. Um, so we, we we sell to quite a few places around Speyside locally, but um, predominantly we, we distribute in the UK. Um, so you you you'll get in high end bars, restaurants. Uh, you can purchase online. Uh, we also fulfil okay. through Amazon, so you can also buy from Amazon. Um, but uh, retailers like Woodwinters and Masters of Malt, you can you can get online. You know, so um, so if you just do a quick Google search for Eight Lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, best to say Eightlands Gin or Vodka because there's a doctor's surgery out there called Eightlands Surgery <laughs> and that's always seems to be the first on Google search for some reason. So, um, so yeah, you should be able to get us online, no problems. What does your role as distillery manager involve? So it's, it's, it's actually quite a varied role. We're a very small team at the distillery. So there's there's two full-time members of staff and, and one part-time member of staff. So the, the day-to-day just basically covers everything you might imagine with working in distillery. Um, so some days I can be I can be sweeping the floors and, and tidying up. <laughs> um, other days we're we're actually in we're we're in process, so we're we're producing. Um, so that will be monitoring the stills, monitoring the quality of the product, tasting, sampling as as the as the day goes through. Um, some days we'll be we'll be bottling, so you'll be you'll be um, hand filling bottles, we'll be labeling, um, that sort of thing. Um, as a distillery manager, I'm obviously responsible for a amount of paperwork as you might imagine there's quite strict health and safety requirements for running a distillery there's also quite strict quality requirements that that we set to make sure we're producing the the, the best product that we can and there's uh, quite a lot of legal requirements for things like paying duty hmrc etc etc 
So my job kind of splits into three parts, really. There's the the, um, the compliance and, and paperwork side of it. There's actual production and working in a distillery. And then there's also visiting guests, welcoming, you know, people who are just passing by who want to come in, do tastings, you know, sales events where we might go to um, other premises to do tastings or or just going door to door to to bars and restaurants and and um, developing that relationship with our customers. Um, that's that's something that's quite uh, quite interesting about what we do with being a small team. It's really nice to have that sort of one on one contact with uh, with people who are buying regularly. Sounds like a lot of variety to your job. What's what do you enjoy most about your job? I think I think for me the the customer facing part of it's it's that's the most different for me um mm-hmm. i mean i've been working in, in in the water industry for for almost two decades you know um and it's it's very different type of type of sales or type of customer interaction than um introducing someone to a luxury drink or a luxury brand and 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 it's it's very fun you know and you get to meet a lot of very interesting characters um so i'm really enjoying that at the moment but i do also really enjoy the fact that i can be be proud of the product we make you know it's it's the only vodka i drink and it's one of my favorite gins you know so it's it's mm-hmm. really nice to be involved with something that's uh, um that's very high quality and the the owners um the owners have got a real eye for that thing you know so uh, it's an important thing for me that i really enjoy working with so why do you think the distillery is important to the estate i think there's a few reasons like any estate it's important to you know sort of have some element of diversity you know so it's important to have you know various different irons in the fire if you like i think it adds i think it adds a lot in terms of those visitor numbers that i was talking about you know we are on the road between Glenlivet Distillery and Glenfiddich Distillery. So we get a lot of traffic that drives effectively through the estate. And most of those people wouldn't know anything about Glenlivet Estate as they were driving through. They might see some signposts, but they, they would have no reason to necessarily know what it was or what our, our vision was or our, our mission was here. Um, so having the distillery and have something that's a, a, a real focus for people to visit and come to and really hear about our philosophy for organic products and for, for quality products. I think that's a, that's a very useful thing for the estate. How many employees does the estate have then, Ellie? Currently, we, we have around 14 employees, and that's coming from our housekeepers to our gardeners, handyman, farm staff, and gamekeepers. So there is a variation of people and roles in the, in the business. And I'm guessing they have quite a diverse range of skills as well, quite a big skill set needed to run such a diverse estate. Yeah, there's everyone's got their own niche thing, but also one of the other skills a lot of people have to have is being the ability to get on with other people. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things on an estate is it's very important that we all gel and work together as one team. People help each other from different enterprises if and when is needed. And I think that's one of the main reasons we're working well together. People have joined you with lots of different skills and experience. Do you work with trainees or apprentices at all? One of the things we found out that was getting farm staff was going to was becoming a problem. And even, I suppose, in gamekeepers, there's just a lack of people getting an opportunity to join this. So over a few years ago, we joined the Machinery Rings Ringlink Apprenticeship Scheme where you take on an apprentice for six months of the year. They come onto the farm and uh, they also just get to develop their skills. These are young people that have just left school and probably aren't ready for going on to further education. So they come on for the six month period, get a training package through Ringlink and we give them the practical experience. We're into our third year of this just now and our current day apprentices Alex Shearer. Hi Alex can you start by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your background in farming are you from a farming family? Uh, I'm from a farm outside a small village called Tomantow it's a sheep farm so I've come come here to learn like new skills with like working with cows and of -hmm. of course the deer as well. So what attracted you to a career in agriculture why did you want to become a farmer? Oh at home I've always enjoyed working on the farm and I like working with animals and tractors and that kind of stuff. So a bit of a varied involvement in the farm. Did you study agriculture at college or did you go straight from school to, to working? I'm actually doing an apprenticeship now so I went to college on a couple of days course and 
my apprenticeship it lasts six months how does the apprenticeship work well it's a it's through the a company called ringlink which is do your courses like tractor or quad bike just whatever and and then the apprenticeship it's six months long and you have an option to do another year apprenticeship at your placement and after you've done that the company decide what they want to do with you so are you currently in the, the six months or are you have you had the extension you're in the six months i'm currently in my six months yes so how are you getting on at the estate how's how's it been starting as an apprentice uh, well i'm quite enjoying I'm, I'm enjoying it like i get on well with the other workers and i get a variety of different jobs and all good to work with as well can you tell me about a typical day at Glenrinnis estate what does what does a typical day look like for you well, and the first thing in the morning, I usually go and feed the deer, and I'll come back down and help the cattlemen, um, just like feed cows around the field, or the fields around the farm, and just in the shed. So mostly livestock based. Yeah. Can you describe the agricultural landscape that you work in? So is, is it mostly upland, or is there some arable work for you as well? Just now, it's mainly upland. And do you do some arable work as well? Uh, I've done in the past, yes. And so, what do you enjoy about your job on this estate? I enjoy like getting a variety of different jobs and like working with animals and because it's a big estate so there's a, like a lot of land and a mm-hmm. lot it's all spread out. Quite a variety of work yeah. and what's it like working with the deer having worked with sort of sheep and cattle before what was it like learning to work with deer? They're quite wild like when you're working <laughs> with them in pens they're quite wild but like out yeah. in the field they follow they follow you okay like when you're feeding them and that. So quite a different different animal to get used to yeah. compared to some more domesticated animals. Something it's something different. Yeah. Keeps you on your toes, I'm sure. Yeah. Would you recommend a career in farming to some of your friends then? I'd recommend working in a place like this because a lot of variety of different jobs and people are great to work with. And like also you get a bit of tractor work and, and that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, great variety. I think that's what's nice about a large estate. As you say, yeah. there's lots of different jobs happening and you can get involved at different levels as well, which is probably nice being an apprentice. I'm very lucky to have this place close, so close to home as well. Can you tell me what you would like to do when your apprenticeship finishes? What would you like to do in the next sort of five to ten years? My dad works at a distillery and I'm quite interested in that kind of stuff. I still do enjoy working on like farms and that as well. So maybe either working at a distillery or maybe go away somewhere else and work on a farm away from home for a while gives you a different opportunity doesn't it yeah. to go somewhere mm-hmm. else and, and yeah, try different things a bit of a bit more like arable work like i say there's a lot of like livestock farms up here so a bit more like tractor work and that kind of stuff brilliant i'm sure there'll be lots of opportunities for you once you finish your apprenticeship you mentioned Ali that the state is run organically which must add an additional challenge to managing what could possibly be quite a difficult climate in topography in northern Scotland and um, why did the business decide to make that shift from sort of conventional farming to organic? The main shift was kind of introduced by the, the current owners Mr and Mrs Locke whose wish was to farm things organically. It has been very challenging over the last a few years till we get it all set up. We've now been farming organically for the last 20 years. So I think we're in a situation now that we have the right rotation, the right muck and slurry for it to go back and farm uh, in such a way. It has its pitfalls when we have weed problems and issues like that. But probably one of the biggest issues we have with organic farming just now is the price of the inputs and the relatively low benefit from being selling organic product. Yeah, are you able to fulfil most of your like sort of feeding needs from from your own produce on the farm? So that you know you grow barley. Does that provide enough feeding? Or are you having to import from elsewhere? The biggest problem with our climate is protein. We have to buy in protein, and buying an organic protein source it can be very expensive. Yeah, just adds an extra level of complexity to doing what you're trying to do. Scotland is perhaps unique in the types of agriculture that we have from sort of small family farms and crofts on the islands and to much larger estates such as Glenrinnis. I think perhaps traditional large estates have maybe been seen by the public as old fashioned or owning large swathes of land which is closed off to the public. That's maybe a perception that people have. But you guys through the distillery and the shoots and the gardens, you seem to welcome people onto the estate. How important is that public access to the estate for you? 
I think it's very important. What you said there was uh, people's perception of estates is very old fashioned and how they think we have all these people coming into Scotland, buying up our estates and closing it all off to public and just keeping it for themselves. One of the things we have here in Glenrinnes is we've got an owner who's very keen to spend money into the, the community. He employs mm-hmm. 14 people. That's 14 houses that he, we have. That's 14 families that he supports. And that whole thing is adding money into the local community here in Glenrinnes. We have a lot of contractors that we use for maintenance. Again, that's keeping the whole areas going and stuff. So the whole people coming in, buying the states and taking the money out elsewhere, I think here in Glenrinnes is a typical estate, which many of them are. They're here to look after and to look and put them into good condition and also make sure they are fit for passing on to future people. Glenrinnes decided that, well, we can close everything off or we can open up to the public. I think we've done that with distilleries. We've got the distillery going where we welcome the public to come and visit. We also have on it here, we do a lot with RET. I believe children need to be educated to where their food comes from and what we do so we and we've had a few ret open days the last one is we had a hundred school children primary five six and sevens that came onto the estate where we educated them on cattle sheep feeding deer sporting shooting and just the whole forestry as well so i think it's important that they see what happens on these places, and it's also good for them to decide for whether this is a job for them in the future. A lot of people don't realise how uh, farming has a lot of STEM subjects, so we do provide, you know, jobs for these kind of people with technology coming more into agriculture, and we'll need them even more so. So open up to the public. We we open up pathways. We've got walkways. We have mm-hmm. about huge amount of people climb Ben Rennes on a yearly basis. It's not Monroe, but we have we own that bit of ground, but we're in working partnership with a local group to maintain paths. We offered them extra land to increase their car park. So we have car parking facilities that are better for them. And just we put on notice boards near that for education, why we do certain things in the moorland and why they should do be careful at certain times of the year. So we encourage that. We also work closely with the local community who have a village hall in the area and we have all their farmland around them. So we allow them access to our land when they need to. We help them with various events that are going on. So we're very keen to help and get people on. I think the way our owners currently, or many landowners are looking after the local community is very good and it's very supporting and make it a vibrant community. Just here in our local round the house, we have two full-time gardeners who are heavily involved in developing the garden organically, producing lovely little different types of areas from greenhouse, flower beds, vegetable patches to marsh gardens and stuff like that, where we maybe once or even twice a year, we open our gardens up to the Scottish Garden Scheme, where we allow Damon Powell, our head gardener, to show off his skills and show people what we are doing here. Hi, Damon. How long have you been working at Glenrinnes Estate? Um, I started in February 2017, just seven years. Can you describe the gardens to us at Glenrinnes as if we were walking through the gates for the first time on a summer's day? What would we see and smell? Well, we're walking up through the drive, quite an overhanging tree avenue, treed avenue. You come up to the main part of the garden near around the house. You've got a small kitchen garden, walled kitchen garden with a large greenhouse. And you've got some quite vibrant borders in there and fruit trees vegetables and herbaceous borders. And what's your favourite part of the garden? Well, we created a labyrinth a few few years ago and that's still quite a novelty and uh, is really quite a nice space to be in. 
So that's at the moment probably my favourite part of the garden. And what sort of labyrinth is it? Is it trees or hedges or how how does it look? No, it's um, it's differential mowing heights, and it's picking out a Baltic wheel. So it's one continual path from the outside into the centre of the garden. And there's a, a really oh, wow. nice oak feature seat in the middle of the garden there. And it's all surrounded with um, daffodils and ornamental trees. Oh, it sounds lovely. Probably quite a logistical nightmare to cut it and, and not want to let any yes. apprentices loose on. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so are the gardens quite formal overall and traditional or, or are they quite are they more modern with the likes of the labyrinth in them? Um, no, I'd say it was quite traditional. Uh, the sections of the garden, there's um, a secret garden and the kitchen garden, and they're actually quite small areas. Probably the two mm-hmm. areas together equal about an acre around the house, informal lawns and woodland planting. It sounds a lovely, a lovely mix. So are the gardens open to the public? Can we come and see them? What happens is once a year we open on the Scottish Gardens scheme. And so that's the chance that the public get to come in. And from this year, we're going to start opening by appointment as well. So anybody that wants to come along, they just contact somebody here and we give them a tour of the garden or they can walk around freely. That's great. So what role have the gardens played in the estate in the past versus what role they play today? Because you mentioned the kitchen gardens. Is that for supplying the estate or is it just for the family? It's mostly for the family. I'm not quite sure. It's an unusual kitchen garden because it's facing north, which isn't suitable for growing fruit and vegetables. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, the the part of the garden that you would think would be for the fruit and vegetables is the secret garden facing south. But um, fruit and vegetables do grow, but it's, it's it's a very short season because of the fact that we're not getting the sun on the ground to warm the place up. So it's more Um, challenging for you as a gardener to manage that space then? Yes. But generally, if there's surplus produce, it, it can go to anybody on the estate, really. That, that's nice that you've got that sort of home home produce that everyone can make yes. use of. How has the gardens changed since you've been working on the estate? Well, the actual structure of the garden, footpaths, walls, etc., are all still in the same place. But we've tried to modernise some of the planting within it and add interest and uh, generally just make it give the garden some flow i suppose you'd say yeah taking you from all the different areas in a nice kind of order so describe a typical day for you on the estate what does your job involve well i say first thing in the morning generally it's a case of coming into the greenhouses they're large greenhouses which replaced uh, original greenhouses so they're on the same site and the same sort of footprint um, but today they're run by biomass boilers so uh, it's quite a good modern setup Um, so I've got to come in do the watering check the condition of the plants feeding when necessary and then once that task has been done we start with um, well this time of year is quite good actually for the new developing areas of the garden so we've been working and developing a, a bog garden so that's been the current project gardener and a handyman and the handyman works with us when when we need him Obviously, we've got to organise the workforce. So we've got gardeners cutting grass and um, cutting hedges, just general gardening. How did you get into a career in gardening? Well, I started off working on farms. I went to agricultural college. That was in Lincolnshire. And then I Mm -hmm. moved across to Lancashire, where it wasn't quite as intense with the farming. So I then got an interest in gardening. Worked for landscape gardeners, and I thought I quite liked it. And I went to college, Myersco College in Lancashire. And uh, from there, I moved into heritage gardening, working for the National Trust of Scotland. Oh, wow. So uh, I worked for them for 23 years on and off and um, have worked in between there for private gardens. Mm-hmm. The garden before here was um, I was working for Mohammed Al-Fayed up near Tain in his castle garden and then came across to here. Wow. So uh, was that quite a different garden to what you're working in now then, Mohammed Al-Fayed's garden? It was similar because it needed the same attention. It was trying to yeah. make sense of the gardens that were there and get a bit of a flow going across the whole garden. Magical place, actually. Wonderful kind of gardens, great castle, superb um, Italian gardens and river that ran through the property. Oh, wow. Sounds lovely. What attracted you to Glen Rinnis Estate? Why did you come to work here? 
I was given a call and asked if I would come and have a look at the place, which I did mm -hmm. do. And I thought, well, it's actually quite an interesting garden and it would be something that suits the way I garden. It gave me an opportunity to implement some design, develop the place. For many of us from sort of farming backgrounds or smaller family farms like I am, it can be quite difficult to sort of imagine the scale that you're talking about to, to require a gardener. How integral do you think the gardens are as part of the larger farming estate? Is it important that they keep going as they are? Well, it all kind of ties in. The size of the gardens, are, I think, are probably about 16 hectares. So that gives you an idea of size. And two gardeners full time are just about enough if we do any more development you would need more staff we kind of tie in with the farm because we can use some of their farm help in the gardens mm -hmm. and vice versa occasionally we can help back at the farm we can use things like um, manure for the gardens for composting just general work in the gardens well pretty much if there's a any kind of event comes up we all pull together so you know we'll all go and help the farm or the farm will help us or we'll help the keepers and, it, you know, it just all works well. There's not Perfect. been loads of incidents, uh, inc incidences where we've been doing that. What do you enjoy most about your job then, Damon? I like working with people. I really like to, the, the opportunity of being creative in my work. I obviously enjoy the outside. I enjoy the wildlife that comes with being the outside and being in this amazing bit of landscape which is um, around and about Dufton and Ben Rinnis. You know, we've got some pretty superb hills and uh, countryside around us. How important is Ellie to maintain and preserve the larger estates of Scotland? Do you think there's still a place for them in Scottish agriculture? Very much so. I think we have to be aware why people come to Scotland. They like what they see in Scotland. And one of the things is we need to make sure that we maintain the states and the hills and the ground like we are doing just now. If we go to monoculture, like everyone complains about for cereal farms, everything like that, if we go to woodland forestry, it won't be the same. We need to have a mix and diverse landscape out there, which we have just now, which we did in the past and we need to do in the future. Thank you so much for your time today, Ali, and a big thank you to all your staff as well for, for painting that picture of us of a typical Scottish estate, but specifically what you're all doing at Glen Rinnis. It sounds like a really lovely, diverse place to work and live. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. If you'd like to read more about Glen Rinnis Estate, Eight Land Spirits, or the Ringlink Apprenticeship Scheme, you can find links in the show notes. This episode was presented by me, Mary Jane Laurie, produced by Kerry Hammond and edited by Ross McKenzie in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.